Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and I want to check in with y'all about Netroots Nation. You might remember I mentioned last month I'm excited to be going to Chicago July 13th through the 15th for Netroots Nation. This is the largest gathering of progressive activists in the country. It happens every year in a different place, and this year it's in the fantastic city of Chicago, one of my favorite places, and you should come too. Netroots Nation is part learning about issues, part skills building, part rallying the folks who do the work, and part fun. Some people come for their jobs. Lots of people come because they just care a lot about what citizens can contribute to politics. For everybody there, it's eye-opening, inspiring, and a chance to connect. The organizers just announced the agenda of training sessions to help you be more effective in the activism you do. You should check it out. It's at the Netroots Nation website, which is netrootsnation.org. There's one on relational organizing that I think might appeal to Beans listeners. You know, vote blue and take someone with you. Sound familiar? There'll be broadcasters and podcasters set up at Media Row where I'll be and at the convention and maybe we'll run into each other there. I'll probably be doing some interviews with folks that I meet. I know it'll be great. I'll update you on planning for Netroots as we get closer, including info about keynote speakers. And remember, Netsroot Nation organizers have given us a discount code. Just enter promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word, to get 10% off the price of your ticket. They've got a discounted hotel block too. So go to netrootsnation.org and register so that we know you're coming. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. Today, the Durham report is out and it totally exonerates Mueller, the FBI, Clinton, the Clinton campaign. There are no charges or recommendations for charges for the opening of the Russia investigation. A former employee of Rudy Giuliani has filed a lawsuit under the New York Adult Survivors Act. An individual attacked Rep. Connolly staffers with a baseball bat. The U.S. Virgin Islands has subpoenaed Elon Musk in an Epstein lawsuit. And new evidence comes to light in a Pete Strzok filing. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Uh, Again, Dana will be back with us tomorrow. I'm looking forward to seeing her again. I miss her. Also, later in the show, I'm going to be talking to comedian and documentarian Hari Kundabalu. 
And he's got a new special called Vacation Baby, which is available now on YouTube. And it's totally free and amazing. I really suggest you watch it. Like, pause right now, go watch it, and then come back and listen to the show. Or, you know, maybe get the news in and then before the interview. Whatever. I really just want you to watch this special. It's really incredible. Aside from that, I'll be hitting the good news later. And we do have a lot to get to today. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. First up, play the sad trombone music, please. The Durham report is out. And not only does it not recommend any charges be filed against Hillary or Obama or the Hillary campaign or Susan Rice, Bruce Orr, McCabe, Strzok, Page, anyone, Comey, no charges recommended. It also makes no new recommendations for any changes the FBI should make. So it's really just a 300-page sad letter. It's his opinion. So this is from CNN. The special counsel did not recommend any new charges against individuals or wholesale changes about how the FBI handles politically charged investigations, despite criticizing the agency's behavior. He had no recommendations to make. A reminder, by the way, the Mueller probe, which took half the time, two years, instead of four years, that Mueller probe yielded charges against 37 individuals and entities with 199 crimes charged and 100% conviction rate. Durham had two individuals charged. 0% conviction rate. There's really nothing to this report besides political garbage opinion. That's all it is. Of course, Durham has feelings about the predication used to open Crossfire Hurricane. But again, that's just his opinion. And it's at odds with the previous Justice Department Inspector General investigation into the FBI Russia probe. That was by Mike Horowitz. Mike Horowitz was like one of three inspectors general that Donald Trump did not fire. He fired all the rest of them, but he kept Horowitz on. And Horowitz and his findings are in opposition to what Durham put out today. And, you know, of course, the inspector general identified problems with the investigation, but concluded that there was sufficient justification to open the inquiry and there was no political bias. Attorney General Merrick Garland sent Durham's report to congressional lawmakers, released the report on Monday. In a letter to Congress accompanying the report, Garland said, Special Counsel Durham's unclassified report is attached in full and submitted to me without any additions, redactions, or other modifications. Garland just let Durham do this to himself. And that was the right choice. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan announced that he reached out to the Department of Justice to have Durham testify next week. We don't fucking care. (laughs) Go for it, big guy. Have your weird party. It's just, it's so dumb. This investigation was launched in 2019 by Trump's former Attorney General, Bill Barr, a probe that Trump and his right-wing allies repeatedly predicted would investigate the investigators, investigate the oranges of the investigation. There would be bombshell indictments of those for treason who scrutinized the former president. And they would end up in Gitmo. And it would take down Comey and McCabe and Bruce and uh, Nellie Orr and all of these folks. Hillary and her campaign and Fusion GPS. Simpson at at Fusion GPS. And everybody was going to end up in Guantanamo for treason. (laughs) Now, four years later, Durham's investigation yielded two losses at trial and a probe that fell short of the very lofty goals set by the former president. Despite acknowledging the FBI had sufficient reason to open a preliminary assessment, or at most a preliminary investigation, Durham acknowledges that, and despite that, he says that the Bureau should not have gone as far as opening a full investigation into whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were coordinating with the Russian government. He basically says you should have done some more investigating before you opened an investigation. So he wanted them to do the same work. It just want, He just wanted them to call it something else, I guess. It's a semantics argument. Red meat for the Trump base. Durham mentions former FBI deputy director and CNN senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe and zeroes in on Pete Strzok, the ex-deputy director of the counterintelligence division. I, they're good guys. I know them. You may have heard. Quote, struck at a minimum, had pronounced hostile feelings towards Trump, Durham wrote while quoting in a footnote previously known texts between Strzok and Lisa Page. (laughs) It's not news, you guys. 
In his 2019 report, the Inspector General Mike Horowitz specifically said Strzok and Page did not affect the start of the investigation. They didn't act out of political bias. Quote, while Lisa Page attended some of the discussions regarding the opening of the investigation, she didn't play a role in the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane or the four individual cases, Horowitz wrote. Strzok and McKay both sued the FBI, by the way, after they were fired. We have some more news later in the Strzok case. McCabe won his. While declining to recommend any changes to FBI policy, Durham is floating a proposal to create a career position for a nonpartisan FBI lawyer or agent who would be tasked with challenging steps taken in politically sensitive investigations. Stupid. (laughs) The proposal was put forward by Stuart Baker, by the way, a former government lawyer who held top roles at the National Security Agency and Department of Homeland Security. So, just as I've said, for four years, He had nothing. He's got nothing. And this report is full of nothing. It's a complete waste of time and money. I wish we could get our money back. The Mueller report paid for itself in asset forfeiture, like five times over. Got nothing out of this. All right, next up from Insider and content warning for this because it is fucking awful. It is so awful. I had to stop reading the lawsuit. I was in the middle of a thread. I was threading about it on Twitter and I had to stop reading the lawsuit. That is the first time that's happened to me in five years of covering justice. It's that bad. So content warning. Bombshell lawsuit out of Manhattan accuses Rudy Giuliani of forcing a former employer to submit to sex acts as a condition of her employment, including making her give him oral sex while he took calls from Trump on speakerphone. Quote, he often demanded oral sex while he took phone calls on speakerphone from high-profile friends and clients, including Trump. That's what Noelle Dunphy claims in the 70-page lawsuit filed on Monday. Quote, Giuliani told Ms. Dunphy that he enjoyed engaging in this conduct while on the telephone because it made him, quote, feel like Bill Clinton, unquote, according to the lawsuit, which seeks $10 million in unpaid wages and damages. Dunphy says she was emotionally vulnerable because she was a domestic violence survivor when Giuliani hired her as director of business development for the Giuliani companies in January of 2019, a job she held for two years. Keep that in mind, two years. She says Giuliani had sex with her when she was too drunk to consent. That's called rape. That was shortly after he hired her. On an evening when he required she stay over in a private guest suite at his Upper East Side apartment. Giuliani demanded she drink scotch with him then barged into her suite as she emerged from the shower. He sat on the bed and pulled down his pants, the lawsuit says. The complaint then features a still image from the film Borat, subsequent movie film, in which Giuliani can be seen lying on the bed with his hand on the front of his suit pants. The film, the lawsuit says, portrayed Giuliani acting in a similar manner to how he acted with Miss Dunphy. Quote, he grabbed her and forced her to give him oral sex, she said, during which Giuliani also hit her in the face and told her that the smack was quote-unquote cute. Quote, her task that weekend included bringing him scotch on demand and brainstorming ideas for interviews, shows, and Netflix series. That's what the lawsuit says. It also alleges, buried on page 25, that Giuliani asked Dunphy for help selling pardons for $2 million apiece. Giuliani told her that Trump and him would split the fee. I've asked legal Twitter, I don't think it's illegal to sell presidential pardons. I really don't. I don't know. Anyway. She was also present for calls where Rudy discussed in 2019 the plan to have Trump allege voter fraud if he lost the 2020 election. That was the plan in 2019. Say there was voter fraud if he lost. Dunphy said she continued to work for Giuliani despite being shocked and saddened by what happened because she feared losing the $1 million salary he had promised, as well as the free legal representation he had also agreed to give her. Giuliani also often demanded that she work naked, in a bikini or in the short shorts with the American flag on them that he bought for her. When they were apart, they would often work remotely via video conference, and during those conferences, Giuliani almost always asked her to remove her clothes on camera, according to the suit. That's what it alleges. Quote, he often called from his bed, where he was visibly touching himself under a white sheet. Giuliani frequently required her to perform oral sex on him as a condition of the job, including while he took phone calls on speakerphone from high-profile candidates. Now, she believes that some of the individuals were, like Trump, law clients during those phone calls, she says. And he at one point said, I think of you as my daughter. Is that weird? Quote, she was continually subjected 
by Giuliani to a hostile work environment, misogynistic, racist, and anti-Semitic communications, constant sexual attacks, threats when she brought up the salary she was owed, and threats when she finally found the courage to confront him with her fears and the possibility of legal action. Giuliani ultimately only ever paid her $12,000, claiming that he needed to defer her salary during his divorce from his then-wife Judith. He claimed that his, quote, crazy ex-wife and lawyers were watching his cash flow and that his ex-wife would attack and retaliate against any female employee that Giuliani hired. So her employment was a secret for two years and she didn't get paid. Dunphy accuses Giuliani of sexual assault, battery, gender discrimination and harassment, fostering a hostile work environment, retaliation, breach of contract and violations of state labor laws. Quote, this complaint sets forth extremely detailed allegations of outrageous abuse of power by one of the most powerful and connected individuals in the country. That's what the lawyer for Dunphy told uh, Insider in a statement. Ms. Dunphy's lawsuit is about seeking justice and showing, again, that nobody in this country is above the law. We're proud to support Ms. Dunphy in her brave pursuit of this matter. It's just absolutely so disgusting. So we'll be watching that lawsuit. I'm, I'm wondering if Special counsel might want to talk to him about some of those conversations Rudy had with Donald Trump because she has recordings and emails and texts. So next up from Shabbat at NBC News, a 49-year-old Virginia man armed with a metal baseball bat entered the district office of Representative Connolly, Democrat from Virginia, on Monday morning and attacked two members of his staff. The congressman and U.S. Capitol Police said this in separate statements. Quote, this morning, an individual entered my district office armed with a baseball bat and asked for me before committing an act of violence against two members of my staff. The individual is in police custody and both members of my team were transferred to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. That's a Connolly statement. U.S. Capitol Police said in a statement that the suspect was identified as Huaca Tran Pham, 49 years old, who lives in Fairfax County. He entered Connolly's office around 10.49 a.m. Eastern. According to police, Connolly wasn't in his office at the time. Pham faces charges of one count of aggravated malicious wounding and one count of malicious wounding. And that's according to the agency. It's not clear what his motivation may have been. The alleged attacker hit staffers with a metal bat. And um, the man is a constituent. Connolly, who's 73, represents Virginia's 11th congressional district and has served in the House since 2009. One of the victims is an intern who was on her first day on the job. It's unclear who the other injured staffer is, but the alleged assailant also damaged parts of the office by breaking glass and shattering computers. CNN first reported some of the details of the attack. Fairfax City Police said a police officer also sustained a minor injury and was receiving medical treatment. Police arrested Pham within five minutes of having received an emergency call, and he's being held at the Fairfax County Adult Detention Center without bail. Quote, based on what we know right now, investigators do not have any information that the suspect was known to the USCP. That's what the Capitol Police said, which also said the special agents from the Capitol Police Threat Assessment Section were dispatched to Fairfax, which is just miles outside of D.C. on Monday. Pham sued the CIA last year, claiming he had been wrongfully imprisoned. He was wrongfully imprisoned in a lower perspective based on physics, and he was being brutally tortured from the fourth dimension. The complaint sought $29 million, seeks, I guess this is current, seeks $29 million in damages. It aligns with the beliefs of conspiracy theorists who claim they're being gang-stalked or secretly watched and psychologically tortured using non-existent technology. FAM asked to be cured by an unstated digital technology. The CIA moved to dismiss the trial last month. FAM represented himself. Next up from Marcy Wheeler and her blog, EmptyWheel.net. Go subscribe and support EmptyWheel.net. Peter Strzok filed what is billed as a motion for clarification of Judge Amy Berman Jackson's order last week requiring Strzok's deposition of FBI Director Chris Wray taking place before Strzok's deposition of Donald Trump. In part, it is a fact check laying out all the ways that DOJ seems to have panicked after and because Strzok scheduled a deposition with the former president on May 24th. This is one of the things the DOJ has done that I vehemently disagree with is their motion to uh, force Chris Ray to go first because they want to try to say that after you talk to Chris Ray, you don't need to talk to Trump. That's what, the, that's what the concern is. In part, Marcy says, it seems to be an effort to preempt DOJ's threat to file for a writ of mandamus against Amy Berman Jackson because she permitted these depositions. 
For example, Strzok's lawyers describe how much easier it was to schedule time with the unemployed former president than with the currently employed FBI director. And under the apex doctrine that the Department of Justice claims to adhere to, that should mean Ray's deposition should come after Trump's. And indeed, that's effectively what DOJ seemed to argue last year. More interesting, though, are notes struck included to establish a need to depose Trump regardless of what Ray says. Both notes taken by John Kelly when he was chief of staff. The first note says POTUS, AG, and Don McGahn. Deep state issues, investigations, firing lovebirds. And then McCabe, question mark. And then trust, question mark. So this note establishes that the that Trump, Barr, and McGahn met to talk about deep state issues, investigations, and firing the lovebirds who are struck in page, and then whether or not they can trust McCabe. It establishes the pressure to fire struck and page may have bypassed Ray. And so when I say, you know, they're concerned that I think what the DOJ is trying to do is if you depose Ray first, that you shouldn't have to depose Trump because everything went through Ray to Trump. But what Pete's proving here with this additional, these exhibits that are attached, is that Trump did this without Ray. So there is a need to depose Trump separately. And Pete Strzok wants clarification on Amy Berman Jackson's order. More curious still, Marcy Wheeler says, however, is this note. POTUS Rand Paul plus two. Security clearances. Add Page McCabe Strzok? Question mark. For some reason, according to Marcy Wheeler here, a week after Trump submitted to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, and 15 days before Rand Paul, who was in that meeting with where that note was taken, before he would carry a letter from Trump to Putin expressing an interest in remaining best friends, Paul Rand Paul was in a meeting discussing the FBI officials Trump had vendettas against, who also happened to be Russia experts. Days after Paul returned from Moscow, the FBI fired Pete Strzok. And per Rand Paul's Twitter account, he met with Trump to discuss revoking John Brennan's security clearance that day. Again, follow Marcy Wheeler on Twitter and support her blog at emptywheel.net to keep up to date on this lawsuit and all kinds of other justicey things. You will not be sorry. Next up, from Dan Mangan at CNBC, the U.S. Virgin Islands issued a subpoena to Tesla CEO Elon Musk seeking documents for that government's lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase over sex trafficking by the bank's late longtime customer, Jeffrey Epstein, in a court filing Monday. That filing said the Virgin Islands has tried unsuccessfully to serve Musk with the subpoena, which was issued on April 28th because of suspicion that Epstein may have referred or attempted to refer Musk as a client to J.P. Morgan. The U.S. Territory asked the Manhattan Federal Court Judge Jed Rakoff in the filing to allow it to serve Musk with a subpoena for the documents with a registered agent at Tesla. That subpoena demands Musk has to turn over any documents showing communication involving him, J.P. Morgan, and Epstein, as well as all documents reflecting or regarding Epstein's involvement in human trafficking and or his procurement of girls or women for sex. The Virgin Islands is suing J.P. Morgan for allegedly enabling and benefiting from Epstein's trafficking of young women to his private island and territory to be abused by him and others. And I want to be clear here. This article calls it sex. I call sex with an underage girl uh, rape. J.P. Morgan denies the government's claims, which are mirrored in a separate pending civil lawsuit in Manhattan federal court by a woman who says Epstein sexually abused her. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is due to be deposed for both lawsuits beginning May 26th. In a May 4th court filing by the Virgin Islands, it revealed that uh, the government had issued a similar subpoena for documents to Google co-founder Larry Page, and that it likewise was having difficulty locating him. What is it that these fucking rich tech dudes just don't want to dodge subpoenas? And the territory previously issued subpoenas to Page's fellow Google co-founder, Sergey Brin, former Disney executive Michael Ovitz, Hyatt Hotels executive chairman Thomas Pritzker, remember him, and Mort Zuckerman, the billionaire real estate investor. In Monday's filing, the Virgin Islands said, upon information and belief, Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla, among other companies, is a high net worth individual who Epstein may have referred or attempted to refer to J.P. Morgan. The government said that it had hired an investigative firm to try to locate an address for Musk, 
and also contacted one of his lawyers. That lawyer in past federal cases has waived the requirement of him being personally served with legal documents, according to the filing. Quote, the government contacted Mr. Musk's counsel via email to ask if he'd be authorized to accept service on Musk's behalf in this matter, but did not receive a response. CNBC has reached out to request for comment from Musk in addition to being CEO of Tesla. He's the head of SpaceX and the owner of Twitter. We know that. In 2018, Epstein told the New York Times writer James Stewart that he had been advising Musk after the Securities and Exchange Commission opened a probe into Musk's comments about taking the company private. When the Times reached out to Tesla for comment, the company strongly denied that claim, saying it's incorrect to say Epstein ever advised Elon on anything. Epstein had predicted to Stewart that everyone at Tesla would deny talking to him. Epstein, and former, who's a former friend of Donald Trump and Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew, was a customer of the bank from 1998 through 2013. In 2008, he pled guilty to a state charge in Florida of soliciting sex from an underage girl. That's the name of the law. Okay, I know it's rape. All right, stay tuned. After the break, I will be speaking with Hari Kondabalu about his new special called Vacation Baby, which is available now on YouTube. You don't want to miss it. Everybody, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm happy today to be joined by comedian and documentarian. He's hailed as one of the most exciting political comics in stand-up by the New York Times. He's uh, an NPR favorite, public radio favorite. He's a regular panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And he now has a special out. It's free on YouTube called Vacation Baby, and you have to check it out. It's really, really amazing and hilarious. Please welcome Hari Kundabalu. Hi, Hari. How are you? I'm good, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. First of all, I've watched your special. It's amazing. It's hilarious. I think it's very pointed. I think it's very relevant. Thank you. And there's a lot we can talk about about the topics that you cover in this. You talk about familial situations, being a parent, being a kid, you know, your family, you know, how the how the pandemic impacted that, the meaning of partner and partnership. It's just so amazing and so funny and so relatable. And uh, I want you to tell me what sort of, because, you know, I did comedy for about 10 years and working on those hours can can be a, a process. Can you tell me about that process and, and what led to, to this material? Sure. You know, it's funny because I've always been really precious about creating an hour. It always takes me forever to do it. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been on stage in two years, obviously, because of COVID and and also having a kid during that time period. So, you know, the other things are much more important. But when I started working again, you know, I wanted to have a goal and I didn't want to just start doing stand up and just, just wait and see like the the, the romance of it. Like, uh, let's see what magic happens and what pieces together like especially being a dad now it's like i don't have time for that like let's have a goal and let's achieve that goal and so uh started in march of 2022 booked a date to record at the bell house in brooklyn end of june 2022 i had four months to like basically work out a ton of new material feel good about it and incorporate some stuff i had been working on you know before the the pandemic hit and so you know, I'm really proud of this work just because not only do I feel like it's poignant, it's timely, it's smart, but I think for me, like, it's a lot of personal uh, achievement in terms of, wow, I could do this in four months. I never thought I had that in me. Also, it's a bunch of material that had been written in a sh relatively short period of time that I'm incredibly proud of. And the fact that, like, I've had this goal for a while of being more personal. And I've always been afraid of being personal. I, I've, I've been more okay with people, f like people um, trying to figure out who I was from my politics or making inferences based on what I say to actually open myself up and share something personal uh, during a really vulnerable time. That was, that was new. And I feel like I got to achieve all that. And plus structurally, I wanted to make something that could be more relatable to people and at the same time, still had my voice. I feel like I got that. And at the end of it, I got more aggressive, like the whole chunk on Tucker Carlson and um, uh, with the uh, white replacement theory and stuff like that. Like part of me was also like, I've lulled you for 40 minutes. Let's get into the let's get into it now. So I, I just feel really good about like as a as a person who makes art, the challenge of this and the fact that I felt like I, I was uh, I was up for it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've talked for a long time on this show and, and had authors and comedians and musicians come on the show to talk about that personal storytelling 
aspect of where we are as a society, because I have found, you know, just through telling my stories that other people don't feel so alone. And I feel like when you don't feel alone, you're harder to gaslight. You know, it's 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 harder to pull the wool over your eyes and to know that there's other people out there who have gone or going through similar experiences as you. And that's why that personal part of it is so, so important. And I and, you know, when I spoke to I had Wajahad Ali on and he when he was getting ready to to pitch his book out, there were a lot of people who wanted to for him to more commercialize it and make it more Mm. relatable to people who aren't like him. And he said, hell no, I, this is my story. I'm going to tell my story and it's relatable. Yeah. That's the whole point. And, and so I, I, I really feel that coming through in uh, Vacation Baby. And, and I, I have to say how much I appreciate it and, and how important it is, you know, as an independent journalist that, that people do tell their stories because, you know, of the importance of that to the rest of us. Talk a little bit about the Tucker Carlson stuff because that, that stuff blew me away, blew my mind. I mean, it was just this idea, this fear that he's putting forward that white people will be replaced by by immigrants. Uh, this idea of uh, the mixing of races leading to the end of the, the white race. And, you know, my, I guess my first point is this is just karma. <laughs> I, I think this is a strategy that was perfected by Europeans, by colonialists. So you know, you, you reap what you sow. Uh, and also, you know, I, it was a personal attack to me as the child of immigrants, uh, who, the father of a child who is mixed. Like, it's a personal attack. It's it's treating us like a threat. Uh, it's treating everything that I'm about as a threat to you and to America. And uh, I, I took that as as an incredible insult. And the fact that you know, the system of, of race was not set up by people of color. The system that we're functioning in uh, involves like white people saying, you know, it's blood quantum. Are you anything other than white? Do you appear not to be white? Like it's this arbitrary system that always has white people. You know, you can't just access whiteness. And so, you know, it was fun just kind of like throwing it right back. And what I love about that bit, too, is like it was personal. Like in, in another era, if I did that bit, it wouldn't have the personal piece. It would have just been about the, the blood quantum part and about how ridiculous it is that we see race the way we do. The fact it felt like a personal attack was new. The fact it felt like it hit different parts of my life, like and, and that the venom wasn't just a, a, a venom of injustice. Like this isn't fair. This isn't right. This is racist. It's like you're going after the people I love. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I I was very happy to say terrible things about Tucker Carlson, and I'm also really happy he got fired. I don't think the two things are related, but I would like to think they were. Yeah, I know. I think he just talked too much shit about his executives, and they didn't like that very much. So that you know, we right. were like, yeah, he got fired for the wrong reasons, but yeah, it wasn't this, but it was that. Right. Right. I mean, we saw that, I think, with Don Lemon, too. I was like, oh, did he get fired because he called a woman out of her prime? No, he got fired because he stood up for black people in the face of uh, an attack on the fact that, you know, black people are a marginalized group. And you're like, oh, that's why? Like, <laughs> it's the all the wrong reasons. And that tends to happen. Um, I, I, I've noticed more and more uh, as we kind of spread apart in our political dichotomy in this country but and and that's why i think these personal stories are so bad every people can relate to that everybody can relate to that lgbtq community is trying to be eliminated because they're afraid that they're going to be replaced again it's a great that great replacement theory right um that the republicans are afraid tough people like tucker carlson are are afraid that their straightness is going to be replaced by something other than straightness Uh, so i mean it 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 reaches out to to so many different people and that's uh, you know what makes it so relatable Recently, as, as you know, we had uh, something else that you talk about in, 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 your, in your special is, you know, we had the verdict in the E. Jean Carroll case where, where the jury had to decide whether or not Donald Trump was liable for rape or sexual assault. They did find him liable for sexual assault and that he caused harm and that he lied about it and that there was actual malice and, and all of these things. 
And and something that really stood out to me um, that was really relatable to me in in your stand up in this new special vacation baby was when you talked about the friend zone. Mm. And I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit uh, about that because so I have so much experience with this and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the idea of the friend zone is basically your long con didn't work. You as a dude became friends with a woman and you wanted something else other than friendship. And it was a long con and it it did not work and you're upset. So like there, you can't be angry with her. And it's like how if you went to a doctor, it would be absurd to be this doctor wouldn't suck my dick. I'm in the doctor patient zone. <laughs> like you, you went for a reason. Like what? What are you reading into where you think, why is he asking me to take my pants off? I don't understand. <laughs> but like, it's very much this entitlement of like, you know, you're a woman, you've paid attention to me. Clearly, this means something. And this isn't to say I'm not guilty of this. Do you know what I mean? I think that I I grew up in this society. I watched romantic comedies. <laughs> you know, I... Uh, was uh, a kid that wasn't particularly like I didn't have girlfriends and things like that when I was younger. And I, I remember what it felt like to be um, like lonely and not understand. And all of a sudden this vocabulary and this idea is introduced, which somehow like takes it off of you. Right. It's someone doing something. They placed you in a place. A and friendship is this wonderful thing. It's such a core <laughs> human thing. And now all of a sudden it's like, you're my friend. You want to be friends with me. I wanted a certain set of objectives met, you know, and that's, you know, th I think that's such a normalized thing. And, you know, at some point as an adult, I thought about the fact that that term is still being used. And if not the term, at least the logic behind it. And it's like, nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you their body. Nobody owes you uh, you know, access to like your the, your intimate thoughts and opinions. No, no, nobody owes you anything, and that's built with trust. And you can't like just assume this is what you're going to get. So I, I just I was happy to to make fun of that. I was happy also to be vulgar about it because it is a vulgar kind of thing. You know, it's it's like it's not said, but when you mean friends, what did you really want? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that you really want? Did you want a hand fasting ceremony that, you know, right, right. right. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's very, uh, there's something about it that's very false. And, uh, you know, and again, I think it's important to say that, like, this is not a, a certain group. This is a lot of men. This was me. This was a lot of young men who have certain expectations and see relationships in this strangely competitive way. Mm. And so, you know, I was I was excited about that joke and I was excited that other people related to it. And honestly, you, know, you were talking earlier about um, the catharsis that comes with stand up, you know, the idea that you don't feel gaslit, the idea that there's other people that are seeing this, too. I like those moments. I like the fact that when I tell that joke, I can tell that the laugh and the clapping is gendered. I mm -hmm. can hear the woos. And it's cool because generally I hear that when it comes to race, but when it's about gender, I think to me, it's almost more important just because, you know, I'm part of the, the oppressor group in that regard. And I think, you know, I'm an imperfect human being and I don't even feel comfortable calling myself feminist because I feel like it's a title to be earned, not to just be bestowed upon myself. But I think those moments feel good. They feel like, okay, that seemed like it was it was useful. It was positive. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And it is. It's very relatable. And, and it's I think it's fascinating the uh, you know, that you mentioned the the reaction you get from the audience and how it seems to be uh, gendered in that way. And, you know, based on how we've grown up and how we've lived our lives. And something else I noticed, too, about um, I love your understanding of the crowd's reaction now that we we're, we're talking about that particular thing because there are a few times where you're like oh that's 
the line, that's what, you know, yeah. now we're uncomfortable. Now, okay, Brooklyn, now we've gone over into... Yeah, nope, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I love that you that you point that out, and I love that they love that you point that out. Talk a little bit about that, finding that line, knowing probably that you might go over it just a touch, and, and acknowledging that. I mean, I think for an audience, like, the one thing that they have in common for you for sure is that you have said things and they have received them. The other life experiences that you're talking about like varies from person to person, group to group. But we, we've we all been in the room for the past 25 minutes. We've all heard the things I've said. Some have worked, some haven't. And we were all in the room when you reacted that way. So it's like saying that I'm present with you. I'm not just phoning this in. I actually am paying attention and you are part of the show. And I think that's, you know, it's almost like breaking the fourth wall in a in a way, and I think people like that, and they like the fact that you cared enough to pay attention to them, and that you know you're you're not just. There is also, I think, the idea of like we didn't give him what he expected. <laughs> he wanted a certain ex, and in reality, like I knew exactly how they were going to react. <laughs> I knew exactly. I mean, at one point, that was an improvised idea, and you've done it so many times mm-hmm. that now it's like. And this is the part they groan. This is the part I say this. If someone else says this, I go this way. You know, every now and then I'm genuinely surprised by like, wow, did not see that coming. Yeah. And I've pointed that out multiple times. I'll tell a joke. And if they get it, I'll be like, you have earned the right. next level <laughs> yes. of unlocking to the clever dick jokes instead of the. That's uh, right. You know, that you you got your laugh right there earned you this next joke. And, and I think that that kind of interaction is 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 so so important I be, and you know there's there's so many comedians who don't listen to the other comedians they'll just be like well i'm gonna go prep my thing and i'm like i want to watch to see how this crowd reacts to the feature or the opener or who else so that i can kind of get who this crowd is but you know you are you know after you've done it enough you already know i get nervous a little bit like i understand because i'm a i'm somebody who preps uh, like paces back and forth repeats especially let's say we're doing a run of three nights the first night in particular you know and part of me like you know it's so funny as someone who hates the idea of stereotyping and prejudging and stuff i prejudge the hell out of a crowd when they walk in those are too many army fatigues there are too many men wearing hats like that oh my god is that a bachelorette party and then you know i go in with all these assumptions which oftentimes i'm wrong about you know, it, so when I watch, sometimes when I watch other performers, I get way in my head if I'm headlining. You know, if it's, I'm not headlining, it's a different thing. But when I'm headlining, it's like I'm making, I, I'm creating these fears that might not be founded in reality. I see. Um, so I, I usually end up trying to create space because I'm trying to like, I, I don't want to assume more about the audience than I already am assuming. I want to go in there and put stuff out and genuinely see how they react. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Um, a couple other questions for you. Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, what happened with AOC? Sure, sure. I uh, The last joke on the special is about how uh, AOC messaged me months before her election, uh, the first one that shocked the world, right? And uh, she wanted to collaborate with me and work with me. And I didn't know who she was. All I knew was this is some local person running for office who wants help, which is cool. And she's doing in Jackson Heights, where I grew up for part of my life. One of the most important places in my life is Jackson Heights, Queens. And I have a special I'm working on and I'm making a documentary about a poo from The Simpsons. And so I don't have time to do this because I'm trying to kill a cartoon character, apparently. So I (laughs) like... So I said, "Ah, you know, reach back to me later. And she reaches out again later. And I never write back, Uh, you know, because I'm I'm doing such important things. Mm -hmm. And then she wins the election. And I am horrified by the fact that I reacted the way I did when she asked for help. And the fact that the night she won, like I wrote, hey, congratulations. Like, oh, now I'm writing back to that four month old message on Twitter. And it's always been an embarrassing thing. Like, you know, I've shared on stage, I've shared with friends and family, and everybody has the same reaction of like, you and your stupid ego. What do you have an ego for? Like, what was, this is the most important politician of at least the last decade, and you've just 
you've just ruined that potential friendship because you were working on some cartoon documentary in your stand-up comedy. And so I close on that story and and I put it up and she saw it, you know, she saw it and all was forgiven. And it it was, I feel, I cannot tell you how much better I feel because I did that joke as a closing joke for a good year or plus, you know, I actually did that joke even before the pandemic, always killed, always did incredibly well. And then when I would get off stage, I would feel bad all over again mm-hmm. immediately because it felt it was funny in the moment. But then it's still like it hits you like, I can't believe I did that. I literally cannot believe that I could be friends with AOC right now. But I was too full of myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I'm really glad that there was some resolution there because I have I'm hoping to meet her one day. Then I think it, it'll, it'll be all full circle. Ah, yeah. The closure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the, the, I think also the humility is is relatable. So um, uh, you know, I think we've all done degrees we, of this. We come back. Know. We come back to the relatability of it all. And now you, you said you're working on a new hour. Yeah, already. So but that's awesome and amazing. I mean, that's that's really that's some good forethought. And uh, I know how much work that is. Tell us about that. You know, when I left off before the pandemic, before the kid and everything else, I had an hour of stuff that, you know, I thought I would just you know, segue, like transition into whatever hour I would be working on after. And to be honest, I had so much stuff about the kid. A lot of that stuff kind of just stayed there. Some of it's gone now, just isn't relevant anymore. But some of it, you know, a lot of it was about capitalism. And I started thinking a lot about how I'm viewing my career and my choices now as as a father, as somebody who now has more responsibilities than simply feeding myself and making art that I'm proud of. I have to feed a kid and just kind of how money, you know, affects how artists create their work. And I, and when I tried to also, I'm, I'm also trying to figure out like all the things I want in the world, the, the justice I want, how many of those things are impacted by capitalism, mm-hmm. like universal healthcare, health insurance, you know, the uh, stable energy, you know, oil and gas, you know, the prison industrial complex. I think about the fact that even Monopoly, which is the most laissez-faire capitalist game where your job is to bankrupt everyone else in the game and own all the property, it's just absolute capitalism to its extreme. And they don't even let you buy the jail. (laughs) Like like even that's not for sale. Why would you make that's a utility? You know, that's a that's a part of what the government provides. You don't buy that. And in real life, you can buy that. And so the absurdity of that. So, you know, I'm I really am trying to, again, connect the personal and the political talk about, like, how I view money now as a parent, as well as kind of the corrupting role that money plays. You know, it's a work in progress. It's mm-hmm. incomplete. It's messy. But I, I see some threads that I'm trying to find a way to tie together. Yeah. Even education with charter schools. I mean, everything, everything, we want to privatize everything. I really look forward to that. I know that uh, it's going to be um, amazing. So I, I really encourage everybody to go to YouTube. It is free. It's called Vacation Baby. It is your new special. It's out now yes. and it's free on YouTube. Can you tell everyone where they can find and follow you on social media? Absolutely. Um, at Hari Kundabolu, at basically ev- everything, all the all the all the places i mean i still have a twitter account though i mostly promote shows it's usually instagram i'm trying with tiktok but i feel so old i feel like i'm not supposed to be it's 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 for 14 year olds to dance it's not for me to post political videos and jokes it's it's not you know it's a, it's a very bizarre space but yeah also you know i released an extended version uh, of vacation baby it's an audio album it has a different edit than the special and it has 20 to 25 minutes more jokes stuff that it's really what the hour originally was when i was touring it um and i call that extended vacation baby you can get that on uh band camp that one costs money but it's money to support my child but no pressure (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah i mean if you like the stuff and this you know i wanted the youtube special to be a little bit more accessible and this one is really for people who, who are fans of my work and who really would appreciate a solution to gentrification, for example, which is on the on the album. 
Ah, yes. Okay. Awesome. So <laughs> I encourage everybody to check that out too. Got to feed the kid. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. I look forward to all the work that you're going to be putting out in the future. Hurry Kundabalu. I will talk to you again soon, I hope. I hope so. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, or you want to play what the mutt or what the heck wine... Uh, or if you have a shout out for a loved one or a shout out for a small business in your area or your business, or if you don't have pod pet tax to pay, you can share an adoptable pet in your area or tell us a story about a whoopee or a stuffy that you have still. I love those stories. And uh, anything at all you want to send us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Tony C, pronouns he and him. Hello, beans. I send in my first good news in April to tell you about my experience at the Drag Queen Storytime at Wadsworth, Ohio, where I stood as an ally with my big American flag and pride flags. Yes, of course, Tony, we remember you. The Blood Clan Nazis were there, and I sent a picture taken by Ford Fisher, the independent journalist. Uh, it was a still from a video he took behind enemy lines showing an armed Nazi with a swastika flag, and my flags were prominent in the background. I remember it well, Tony. A few weeks ago, the same Nazis were in Columbus, pathetically failing to intimidate attendance at a drag brunch. Rachel Maddow covered the Nazi presence at drag events and included video from Columbus and Fisher's video from Wadsworth. And there, big as Billy be damned, were my flags proudly waving on MSNBC's flagship show. The video looped. I saw my flags repeatedly. I, I may not have cut a figure of restrained dignity as I whooped and giggled in the kitchen, it was very exciting. I had my back turned the whole time uh, and my dark green rain jacket blended into the background. So only the flags really showed. But now I'm anonymously famous. Next, I will be at a rally for Jalen Walker, an African-American man killed by police in Akron. Excellent. Excellent. So cool. Yeah, I saw him there, Tony. That was awesome. All right, next up from Anonymous, no pronouns. Hi, Queens. After seeing clips from the town hall, I imagine a world where E. Jean keeps taking him to court and winning on summary judgments until the former guy is in prison and Mar-a-Lago is E. Jean Carroll's. Maybe she could turn it into a wildlife sanctuary. Thanks for all you do. And here's to many, many more indictments. Thank you, Anonymous. Very good point. That would be great. I, I, I'm looking forward to the day Mar-a-Lago goes up for asset forfeiture. Maybe we can give it to the Ukrainians just to rub a little fucking salt in the wound. That'd be great. All right. From Carolyn, pronouns she and her. My good news and shout out to my daughters is that my grandson is three months old and his mom is healing. In early February, she was diagnosed with preeclampsia. Her kidneys weren't functioning well, so they induced labor. People adore my daughter. She radiates kindness and her laughter sounds like silver bells. Her nurse stayed past her scheduled time and the day before her birthday because concerned for her new friend. My brave and thoughtful angel stopped pushing at midnight, looked up at her nurse, wished her a happy birthday, and pushed out her son 30 minutes later. Then she almost bled out. She's an amazing woman. She's kind, thoughtful, intelligent, and a great mom and a partner. Uh, he is also awesome. He reads instruction. <laughs> Here's a picture of the new family and the new baby cosplaying as baby Yoda. I love them all. Beautiful, beautiful photo. Oh, I wish Dana was here to see the baby. I'm going to send this to her so that she won't miss it. But thank you for sharing that and congratulations. And your daughter sounds amazing and so does her partner. Such good news. Next up, feel freer in Baja, pronouns she and her. Meet Chica. She's a Baja rescue. But what is she? She's an 18-month-old, very smart puppy, full of energy, maybe 14 inches tall. She chases around squirrels away all day long and burrows herself in my bed at night. She loves to play fetch and buries her chew bones in the couch or under my pillow. What's the mutt? All right, in order. Okay, the answers are right up at the top. So I'm covering them now and I'm going to look at this little baby. It looks like you got some chihuahua in there. I'm always going to say chow. Uh, the color looks like a shepherd. And mom, I don't know. Skipper key, maybe? Going out on a limb with that one. Let's see. We've got German Shepherd, Cocker. Okay, missed that one. Poodle, all sizes, missed that one. Terrier, she is one, missed that one. And way down at the bottom is Chihuahua. <laughs> all right, so I got Shepherd and Chihuahua. Don't believe it and sent a second test to a different company. It came back nearly identical. 
On the second test, I wrote her name as Chica, but she decided to change it to Chicago Mystery Dog so they wouldn't assume she's from Mexico. <laughs> Look forward to your show every day. Thanks for keeping us informed on the news. Um, and I love that you changed it to Chicago Mystery Dog so they wouldn't assume. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, what a beaut. The ears. Oh, the ears. She can hear space. So, so lovely. Next up for Mariah, pronouns she and her. Please accept my most awkward family pet photo. <laughs> my sister-in-law asked us to pose Olin Mills style, and this is what resulted. Hammy McBacon fat looks over it. The best boyfriend in the world looks happy. I'm looking away, and my disembodied hand rests on his shoulder. That is, it doesn't look like your hand for some reason. Oh my God, this is so funny. The dog. <laughs> oh my God. Hammy McBacon Vat is like, what? This is so great. Oh, I love your Monstera plant behind there. Thank you, Mariah, for sending that in. Next up, grateful human pronoun she and her. Hello, Leguminati. I've been listening to you regularly for the last year and just became a patron because it's obvious to me how much work goes into every show. As a parent of two daughters, 20 and 17, it's important to me to teach them to value their own time and the time of others by not selling themselves short and by supporting the work of writers, artists, and the thinkers they appreciate. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. I'm grateful to you, grateful human. My good news is that our family is going to celebrate our younger daughter's high school graduation next week. Thanks to the Affordable Care Act, which kept us eligible for health insurance, despite her very complicated medical history that culminated in cardiac surgery in 2014 when she was eight. We were also able to celebrate her as a whole person here in our LGBTQ plus friendly community, thanks to the tireless work of activists and advocates who kept issues of access and inclusion in the minds of decision makers every day. And because of the thousands of people who worked hard to reach safety measures for COVID-19 that kept us alive during the years she went through high school in our basement on Zoom. We're able to celebrate because of the work of great teachers, guidance counselors, clergy, and community leaders who encouraged this graduating class to hang in there. It took more than a village to get the class of 2023 to the finish line. In this case, it took a whole country that didn't give up. This is part of the celebration, keeping in mind the gratitude for every reason we made it to this moment. That's so amazing. What an incredible outlook. What an, a gift to see it that way. For pet tax, I'm including a picture of my daughter with her pet uh, bearded dragon, Gobble, whose full name is Gobble the Thanksgiving, the Thanksgivenica, that's Thanksgivenica lizard. He was a gift uh, the year that Hanukkah began on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, now I get it. Thanksgivenica. He's nearly 10 and enjoys romaine lettuce and snuggles. Thanks for all you do, bearded dragon. Congrats, class of 2023. You really did go through it. And um, just what an amazing way to to acknowledge everything that got you through it, right? So wonderful. Thank you so much for your good news submissions. If you have any you want to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Thanks to uh, Hari today. That was awesome speaking with him. And please check out Vacation Baby. It's on YouTube right now. And uh, oh, I, Dana will be back tomorrow. I'm so excited. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I'm been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.